What Really Happened is written and hosted by me, Andrew Jenks, and produced by Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. It was a date. A woman and I, she told me it was okay to tell this story, were going out. It was going to start with a simple dinner in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, a Middle Eastern restaurant called Mazesh. I had been once before and knew it wasn't anything fancy. Mazesh was a small place, low-key, and I thought it was also very New York City. You had to walk down a few stairs to get inside. The lighting was dim. Their menu was listed up on the wall. And it had history. This was the place where famous chef Eddie Huang started his first iteration of Bauhaus and where Andy Ricker began Pock Pock. Frankly, that meant little to me, but what did mean something was the delicious items on the menu. The beef kofta sandwich with hummus, the Bedouin chicken, and above all else, they had really good falafels. Mazesh was that one word everyone uses way too much these days, but is actually true in this case. The restaurant was authentic. Anyway, my date was into the food, but not really me. We remain friends. Regardless, a few months later, when I went back to get another falafel, an authentic falafel, the restaurant had gone out of business. Now, that was a few years ago. So fast forward to a few weeks ago. I was watching cable news when I saw an interview pop up with a man named Nasser Jobber. He's a chef. Since the news has been covering coronavirus 24-7, I found this to be strange. What's a chef doing on here? He looked familiar, but I couldn't place him, and the volume on my remote wasn't working, still isn't working, so I couldn't figure out what he was talking about. On the bottom of the screen was his name, and I looked him up. Now, when I look someone up, I don't just Google them. I go pages and pages deep. I end up on your Instagram, Twitter, of course, but I also find all sorts of details. Your favorite t-shirt, your family tree, why you have brown eyes instead of blue. It gets weird. Anyway, I breezed through Nasser's social media. Turns out he grew up in Jordan, the U.S., and Palestine. He likes Kit Kat bars and didn't go to culinary school to become a chef, but instead learned by roughing it out at different restaurants around the world. After a while, I ended up on a Yelp page, the site where, among other things, people review restaurants. And I realized Nasser had co-founded that restaurant on the Lower East Side, Mazesh. Did I remember him from the restaurant? Maybe. Now, while this rogue investigation was going on, I had been working with Dell on doing a podcast episode about a small business. Perhaps Nasser had a story. I always wonder how certain restaurants get by. They're trying to pull off a small business, something that was once nothing more than an idea. And in this case, there are the benefits and drawbacks of being in the thick of New York City. So what happens when you do build that dream and then you fail? It was time to call Nasser and ask, what really happened? So I reached out to him on Twitter and he kindly responded and said he could find some time to talk. 
I let him know I'd be recording the conversation because, you know, that's normal. And really because maybe it could be part of this episode I'd be doing on a small business. We got on the phone one night and I got right into things, asking him about that restaurant. Well, first, I'm so happy that you have actually came to the restaurant and tried the food. The decision to start a restaurant was probably by far the most uh, courageous and stupid move I've ever done. The restaurant didn't do well uh, at all. We ended up selling the business after two years. And I think the last month we were in operation was the month that we broke even. It didn't do well financially. I mean, to be very forward, we were losing uh, close to $8,000 a month. Uh, in the business. And it was a small operation. So to us, that's a lot of money. Despite well-established and famous chefs having occupied the same location in the past, Nasser later learned that those chefs also didn't last at that location. The rent in the Lower East Side, despite it being a small place, was extremely expensive. Nasser was also spread thin. He wasn't just in charge of the food, but marketing business development, press, management, and recipe development. While the food was indisputably good, he also told me that while I found the restaurant to be authentic, others interpreted that authenticity as a bit blowbrow. So Nasser was now out of money, and the downward spiral was just beginning. I lost my job, and I lost my home. Like, I was literally at the bottom of the pit. I was homeless. I had nowhere to go. I had no income. I had to go crash to my friend's couch and I would sleep between couches among different places and I had no partner. I was engaged to this amazing, amazing girl. But like, you know, one of the things that makes uh, relationships work out is financial security and I just didn't have it. And we were planning a wedding, right? And it's not like that she didn't stand by me, but like the, the issue was it was so tough that it was adding a lot of strains to the relationship. So of course that accelerated the ending of it. Personally, on a personal front, I mean, I was in debt heavily, right? And at the same time, I had to take care of my parents back home. Nasser's small business had failed, and he was going through a lot. But before the new owner of the restaurant took over, there was a period of time where Nasser still had the restaurant, still had that space. And he decided to try something new. He began offering themed dinners. So, for instance, one themed dinner was about the experience Palestinians have had moving to South America as refugees. You get a taste of a variety of foods and talk about issues not normally discussed. The idea worked well, and people paid a little extra for this experience. Then, while the restaurant was in its last few months, before new ownership officially took over, Nasser got an interesting call. At the time, I was contacted by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees. And that is a UN organization that deals mostly with Palestinian refugees around the world. Uh, growing up, we would, uh, and with my family at least, and many other families, would wait for the uh, sacks of rice and sugar and salt that uh, the organization would hand out because there was a lot of food insecurity. So they mentioned that there was a refugee from Syria that uh, arrived, and unfortunately, he didn't have any job, language skills, or work skills. 
And on top of that, he was gay. So what ended up happening is that he was actually being uh, oppressed or persecuted on two different fronts, one as a refugee and two for his sexuality. The UN agency was calling to see if Nasser had any job openings for this refugee. The problem was, as much as Nasser wanted to help, he didn't have a business. He certainly wasn't hiring. But he still had that space for a few weeks and had been doing those themed dinners. And I realized, hey, like, if I have all the ingredients, this refugee can come, he can cook dinner. We will sell the tickets for $75 and direct all that money to him. And, you know, it's not much. It's a thousand bucks, you know, for like 10 people or 11 people. But he will tell his story through five courses. So how do you tell a story in five courses? Well, Nasser realized a five-course meal was similar to a five-act story. Each course or each act serves as a different milestone. So the first two courses would generally be about the person growing up. Then course three, act three, is the climax, when the person is displaced. They are forced to move. They become a refugee. Course four, act four, is the journey they take looking, oftentimes with their life on the line, for somewhere else to live. And then the final dish, the final act, would bring the chef, the refugee, to the present moment, where they talk about their current struggle, looking for help with food, housing, a job, and much more. We can tell the story of the refugee from the point of overcoming the point of like being the underdog and overcoming all these uh, issues and um, make an ask at the end of the dinner. So we did it and the dinner became successful. The refugee was able to get out of poverty, find a house and find a job. All of a sudden that created a trend because the media picked it up. They called these dinners displaced kitchens. And to be clear, Nasser is being humble when he says the media picked it up. It wasn't just anyone in the media. I looked online, and the New York Times wrote about it twice. Vogue did an extensive piece. Nasser did a presentation at South by Southwest. I mean, this thing took off. As part of an envoy on behalf of the American government, Nasser went to Morocco, Turkey, and will soon be addressing the Swedish parliament. Other people reached out on how to do it. Other organizations adopted the model. And eventually, it became part of the gastro-diplomacy missions that the government actually uh, sends us for to the world. So we were approached by the Center for Institutional Private Enterprise in Washington, D.C., and we found a very interesting and niche space in the impact or, or changing people's lives through food. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning to Nasser realizing there was something bigger to this concept of using food to do good for others. The model Nasser had developed and used to host these dinners ended up being implemented by organizations around the world. And after working with many of these groups, Nasser and his teams achieved something extraordinary. Eventually, all in all, months later, we fed over 5,000 people and lifted hundreds of families out of poverty. But despite this immense success, there was also the reality for Nasser. He was out of work. He got a few gigs waiting tables and doing dishes, but nothing lasted. I was just trying to fend for myself by waiting tables, trying to get a job at a different kitchen, trying to work things out. And finally, 
I was able to find work at a Palestinian restaurant that opened up, which I was grateful for because it was like my domain, my food. Like I understood completely how to execute. Nasser had a new job that was working out, but he kept wanting to do something on his own, something bigger. Really, he wanted to create another business. He had been talking to his mentor and fellow chef, Daniel Dorado. They were helping refugees, migrants, and others who had been displaced in some capacity and were providing them with work. But how could they do this while also creating and maintaining a sustainable business? They came up with an idea called the Migrant Kitchen. They would go to places like WeWork or other companies with a decent-sized cafeteria or eating area and sell lunches. They'd serve food from around the world, food that they had specialized in and food that they had learned to cook from working with so many different chefs and so many refugees from around the world. We go to site, we get in by 11.30, we unload, we go to the common area, the cafeteria area, or whatever area they designated for food, and we set up shafers and set up a buffet station and put two people to serve and a terminal at the end where you can check out. So it's like a a pop-up buffet, if you will, at corporate offices. They called it the Migrant Kitchen for three reasons. One, because we definitely hire, and the primary reason that we hire migrant workers. Two, because the dishes are all innovative dishes that we have based on discussions of flavor between different cuisines in the kitchen. So the flavor migrates as well. And we don't have a storefront. So the, the kitchen itself also migrates. They started selling meals at a WeWork in Brooklyn. Word spread. Soon enough, the migrant kitchen was at nearly 25 WeWork locations, and the hustle was just beginning. And then we would go to other offices like banks, uh, also by referral. Uh, Do you know the person that's running the office at so-and-so hedge fund? Yeah. Do they offer lunch service? Yeah. Can we come in and try? Sure. I even have done tastings at Bloomberg. Like I reached out to Bloomberg. I was like, this is what I do. The team at Bloomberg was like, great. We offer lunch every day to our employees. Can you come do a tasting? So we sent the tasting. We told them about their impact. They were very friendly. We had a meeting together. So we do a lot of like free tasting for like three to four people who are like the decision makers. And when they like us, they bring us in. And then, you know, it's just uh, hospitality from that point because we know the food is good. It's just that how do we serve the food? Like, are we happy? Are we good people? Are we interactive, right? As I got excited for Nasser, how do you not root for this guy? I started to realize this story may not end well. The Migrant Kitchen only started in October. And then coronavirus hit. And restaurants, including his own, had to shut down business. But Nasser devised a plan. Nasser's business, The Migrant Kitchen, was starting to take off when coronavirus hit. Now it had to shut down. And like all of us, he was hearing stories of nurses, doctors, and other healthcare professionals working long hours with little food. So all the doctors who are in uh, hospitals were not getting any food except for like pizza. 
And, you know, being Arab and having a lot of Arab and Jewish friends, most of them are doctors, lawyers, or engineers. So they all called and said, hey, uh, can you send us some food? And then we started sending a few meals. Then their friends started asking, then their other friends started asking. All of a sudden, we started feeding entire units in the ER. But we didn't have money for product. We didn't have money to pay our workers. There was no introduction to the current loans they're handing out now. They were still discussing the aid package that they're sending out in Congress and Senate. So we decided to launch a GoFundMe campaign. And we were the first ones to feed the healthcare workers. The media picked up what Nasser's kitchen was doing for so many. That is why he was on cable news the one day when I couldn't turn up the volume. And that generated a lot of, not a lot, but like almost like thirty dollars or $40,000, which allowed us to run for a couple of weeks. By that time, all the doctors know each other, all, you know, they're all connected in some way or the other. We're asking for meals for the COVID units. So we started with NYU Bellevue. We moved over to Memorial Sloan, then to Lenox Hill, then to Mount Sinai, then to Elmhurst, then to Methodist, then to uh, Lincoln in the Bronx. So we would get headcount of how many people in the ER. And we were grateful because we were able to partner up with DoorDash. And DoorDash decided to waive all their fees. And all the money that we pay for delivery go directly to their drivers. So this became like a trifecta of impact in which we would send out food to the doctors. We would employ our workers at the same time pay the couriers. And we kept on going from week to week based on the budget of donations that we get. And this is how it is now. I'm lucky to say that uh, we were able, like as of last week, team up with World Central Kitchen and they helped us scale up. And now we are at 2,000 meals a day. I was learning a lot more than just the reasoning behind why Mazesh closed. And so one of my last questions, as I had held Nasser on the phone for about an hour now, was what keeps him going? What makes him unafraid of failure? You know, growing up Palestinian, You belong to everything and nothing at the same time. Your identity is robbed from you. Your culture is robbed from you on all fronts, not just cuisine. And you're considered persona non grata. Like to be very forward, if we're going to be very open here, I struggle heavily with depression. Uh, Being bipolar, I even have vitiligo. Vitiligo is a disease that causes loss of skin color in patches. The patches of skin affected become white, and usually have sharp margins. I started developing vitiligo at the age of 13, 12, 13. And it started off with my fingertips. And it moved over to now cover 40 to 50% of my body, which always made me feel like I am a failure. Then you start looking at yourself and you're like, I'm I'm unattractive, I'm ugly. People don't understand what it is. A lot of people in my village thought it was leprosy. They didn't want to touch me, right? I had depression since I was 13. I mean, I knew I was depressed. And it's not like I didn't want to uh, seek help. It's just that I couldn't afford it. And of course, that you know, it took a, to- a huge toll. So for example, when I'm depressed, it would last months. And the depression tra- it translates itself in different ways. Your confidence is gone. You don't think you're good enough. You think you're dumb. You think you're not worth anything. And then you start looking for... Uh, reasons to prove that, right? Your mind starts looking for reasons to prove that you are these things. Well, I'm a failure. Of course I'm a failure because I wait tables or because I can't pay my rent. One time I remember stayed in bed 
during the holidays when you know, the Christmas break or whatever. I stayed in bed for like 36 hours. I did not move. I just like went to the bathroom and came back. So it was really, really tough. If you're not a doctor, lawyer, engineer in our community, like that's not successful. So for a long time, I was very embarrassed of who I am, uh, waiting tables or you know dropping falafels in a fryer. And it wasn't until I was 30 that I realized, okay, if I'm going to become a waiter, or I'm going to become a, a person just frying falafel, I'm going to become the best at it. And of course, it took like a lot of therapy and things of the sort. But that was on the personal front. Then I decided, okay, I don't have the money or you know the skills to take the GMAT exam, but I was obsessed with Stanford and obsessed with the way that their graduate business school always had innovation. So I downloaded their curriculum and studied all their books, thinking outside the box, thinking in terms of problem solving. And then eventually failure becomes a part of the process. It becomes like having a cup of coffee. You, you fail, you try, you fail, you try, you fail, you tweak, and you just keep at it. So if you hit that much rock bottom, you really have to look you know, fear in the eye and say like, screw you, like the only way is up. And then it becomes like almost this invincible power of like, what can I do next? So that took a lot of training. It took a lot of meditation. It took a lot of confidence building. It took a lot of therapy. But eventually right now we're feeding New York City. And, you know, it might not necessarily make any money, but I'm very proud of that. And the idea is to take the small wins and put them together to believe that you can do it. And, and until the opportunity comes where you can do something grand. During this phone call, I learned Nasser's career is likely just getting started. The crisis has taught a lot of people the importance of human connection and that we lived for a long time in this virtual space of the internet and computers and people just miss human connection. And what better connection that we can give uh, aside from food and just getting together on a dinner table. So I hope that we, can, uh, we are able to do that on a personal front. Nasser hopes the migrant kitchen can start again when the time is right. But he's not stopping there. Another front is that I hope that we can continue impacting people's lives with food. I am much dedicated to lifting people from poverty, telling the story, right, in particular, of the people that we work with and my, my story and the story of every single person who has come from an oppressed place or oppression or violence or things of the sort through food. There's a quote that I like, which goes along the lines of, when the fall is all that's left, how you fall matters very much. Nasser has fallen many times, but while falling, he may help save a refugee. He may think of his next business. He may help feed thousands of hospital workers. Nasser knows it's up to him to tell stories, using food, about the underdogs, the disenfranchised, the people we counted out. Nasser is ensuring those people have a voice, a chance to tell all of us what really happened. If you're able to help Nasser feed hospital workers and patients, go to tinyurl.com slash the-migrant-kitchen. That's tinyurl.com slash the-migrant-kitchen. 
I'll be posting about this story on Instagram and Twitter at Andrew Jenks. For more information on Nasser's journey, you can always follow him on Instagram at nasjob83, N-A-S-J-A-B-83. If you like the show, I would humbly and kindly ask that you leave a rating and comment.